Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 609 with my guest, Winston Panjon. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for nut jobs to <laughs> relax and feel less alone. I'm not a therapist. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey. And uh, a woman who calls herself Riddle of Revenge says about her depression, I'm so hungry, but the fork is 100 pounds and the food tastes like shit. So I guess I'll just sit here and starve. That is a good one. That is a good one. A friend of mine, uh, we were in a support group meeting uh, yesterday, and she's struggling with uh, depression. She's really kind of bottomed out on it. And... um, and and we were just both saying how hard it is to talk about depression, you know, even if you're over the stigma of talking about having depression, just to be able to find the words to put it into a sentence. It's like, it's like trying to describe, you know, an empty room. It's like, how do you, how do you describe it? It's like talking about fog. It's so hard. It's so hard. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I could live off pancakes. Uh, What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? People are only friends with me because they feel sorry for me. I'm too annoying to be genuinely loved. My boyfriend's going to get sick of me. If I stopped messaging first, I would never hear from anyone. I'm not smart. I'm not as pretty as others. I have no business trying to look nice because when I do feel like people are thinking, who does she, because when I do, fucking Gracie, because when I do, I feel like people are thinking, who does she think she is? She looks even worse now. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second while I go and have a chat with the princess. Well, that went well. She seemed open to what I had to say. I told I reasoned with her. I said, look, I'm... I'm doing a podcast. I make my living doing this. And your barking has really no effect on anybody walking by the house. So let's wrap it up. This is from the love survey filled out by Curly Coffee. And they write, I love pouring milk into my iced coffee in the morning and watching the white swirls pool and bloom in the glass. I love that. I love that too. Ah. Man, if you have never tried cold brew, fuck, it is so good. Cold brew and oat milk. I can't go back to hot coffee. I know a lot of you, you hear that, that very strong phrase that I just laid down, and you think, what the fuck is he talking about? You got to try it. Try it with oat milk. Good, strong cup of good cold brew. I think Stumptown's a good brand. Chameleon's another. And don't get the kind with all the bullshit and the sugar and just get the straight. Put a little oat milk. Life-changing. Life-changing. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a guy who calls himself M. He writes, I'm afraid I'll die without ever being in a relationship and be able to have sex. My childhood was defined by my hateful, choleric, psychotic mother who terrorized everyone around her. She was hooked on benzos. Most of her raging was directed at my passive dad. The message that I picked up on very early from both of my parents and my peers was that I am unwanted. 
Fast forward, both of my parents are long gone. I'm in my 40s and have never even had a girlfriend. Had a few sexual encounters. They were all unsuccessful. Couldn't get it up. I was anxious every time. Decades of porn addiction undoubtedly also played a major role. I fear women. I fear that if I opened up to one, all the pent-up sadness will burst out. I will become a crying, sobbing mess she won't want to have anything to do with. Also, I don't want to fail in bed again. I've been trying to stay away from porn for nine years now, but always relapse after a while. In short, I don't want to be rejected again. Oh, buddy. I feel for you, man. I feel for you. That is um, sexual dysfunction something I've struggled with in my in my life. And until I began to process trauma, especially childhood trauma and, and parental child trauma, um, it, it, uh, it was so hard to untangle things. But, you know, I, I, I think that I don't think we're ever, I should say, I think it's rare that we are, you know, quote, broken, unquote, I think in most cases we're wounded. And I think, I think we can heal even the sexual stuff, even the stuff, you know, when we had a really, really complicated, intense relationship with a, with a parent, but just my two cents. I hope, I hope if you want things to change that you don't give up on it. I hope you seek maybe a new therapist or a, um, support group, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Willow. She writes, I just started a new job as a science professor. When I arrived, my office was not ready yet, and they had me in a temporary space. One of my students told me the full truth after class one day. Apparently, Harold had committed some sexual misconduct against a female colleague, colleague and was let go. When he was let go, there was never a chance for him to clear out the decades of shit he had accumulated for all those years. My department chair took me out for coffee and said, oh, and Harold, yeah. He was a misogynistic narcissist, and we no longer speak to him. And he said he didn't tell me the full story, so I wouldn't be waked out, but I already knew. A few days later, my supervisor had a barbecue for our faculty in our department. Another faculty member said, ah, you are replacing Harold. Oh, wait, he was an absolute asshole. I shouldn't say that. You're covering his teaching. My supervisor followed it up with, yeah, he was a longtime friend, but he is an absolute asshole. Yeah, this was a bombshell, but it was honestly heartening and a bit of a full circle for me. I was sexually assaulted as an undergrad, and the college president said, oh, honey, you brought this on yourself. You don't want to ruin his career, do you? Leaving me without recourse. So I was heartened that the institution washed their hands of Harold instead of just sweeping his mis misconduct under the rug because of his decorated science career. So I went from a vilified survivor of sexual assault to an accomplished academic who is replacing a disgraced faculty member who was a sexual predator. Glad to see that there has been a paradigm shift as well, where he was held accountable. CV be damned! Exclamation point. Thank you for that, Willow. There's, you know, there's just nothing like feeling seen and feeling valued as a human being. That sounds like an understatement, but it is, it is shocking how often in our day we feel, um, I don't know, 
not seen, not respected, minimized. And I'm a white dude. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself mischaracterized. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I just had my annual review at work. I work with adults with special needs. I'm constantly doubting my own ability to do this job. My review went ridiculously well. They had zero criticisms for me, nothing but praise, admiration, and gratitude for my work. I was so high from that feeling of success. It lasted all of 48 hours before that mean voice came shrieking into my head like a fucking banshee to tell me how unprofessional I am. It seizes on little comments I made that might be misconstrued as oversharing or inappropriate. They aren't really, I know that, but this voice never seems to let me believe that I am successful, that I found a job I am good at, that I can trust my own judgment. It's like I have a a flow stop in my brain that just shuts off feelings of self-worth so they can't reach above a certain level. I'm constantly told by my bosses, co-workers, and partner how good I am at this, yet I constantly tell myself they just can't see the truth. They don't know I'm really an imposter. It's so amazing. Thank you for that. That is um, sadly so common. And I don't think it ever ends until we decide to end it, you know, or at least challenge that mean voice in our head. It's like a, it's like a toxic person that we are um, neighbors with. Uh, you know, if you want to stand in your lawn and listen to, to them insult you all day long, you can do that. Or you can say, oh, thanks. I'm going to go inside. This is uh, also from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as another castaway. And they write, there are some thoughts I have never shared with a therapist because I'm afraid they will admit me to a psych ward that I surely cannot afford. Oftentimes, I have extremely violent thoughts about myself. I've never acted on these thoughts, and I don't think I ever would because I don't like being in pain, and I'm afraid of it. But sometimes, it feels like there is a crueler version of me that is always wanting worse things to happen to me. It's like watching a cage fight where I'm beating on another version of myself as the audience, which are rows of myself, cheer for more. I don't know when the voice in my head got to be so mean, and that scares me. These days, I'm trying to be gentle to myself, not encourage the self-hatred that is coiled up inside of me, but that is so much easier said than done. It is so true. It is so true. Thank you for that. And you know, something that helps me sometimes is, is to just write down a list of the good things in my life or things that I've done that are nice or good or that I could be proud of and just get some objective facts going. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Arbitrary Mary and about her depression. She writes, it's like my one true purpose is to be a paperweight for the bedsheets. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. It is 8 o'clock at night here, and I just woke up from a nap. So, uh, Arbitrary Mary, I think you and I might be related. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
online therapy. Uh, you know, we talk about problems and issues and all that kind of stuff on the podcast all the time. And it's pretty rare that we talk about something without talking about what's a, what's a solution or what's a direction to, to head into. And I think a lot of people that don't believe in therapy or don't think they need therapy or their problems aren't bad enough to go to therapy or nobody would understand them in therapy. You know, there's a saying in recovery that you can't fix a brain with a brain that created the problem. You need that outside perspective. And that's one of the things I love about therapy. And my therapist, Heidi, uh, has been really helping me with my productivity. I, I these, these last three months, I don't think I've ever been this productive in my life. And it feels really good. And uh, it should probably end in about a week, <laughs> says the mean voice in my brain. But uh, if you're thinking of getting, giving that therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And don't uh, forget to include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Fisher Wallace Labs. The brain is an electrical system, so Fisher-Wallace developed a wearable brain stimulation device that is cleared by the FDA to treat depression, anxiety, and insomnia. It's been proven safe and effective in multiple clinical trials and is prescribed by over 14,000 doctors and providers. The majority of patients experience relief within two weeks without side effects. If you're already taking medication, it's safe to use in combination. Not every medical health treatment works for everyone, which is why Fisher-Wallace has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Try it for up to 30 days and return it for a full refund if it's not a game changer. Discover why Entrepreneur Magazine named Fisher-Wallace one of the five health tech startups to watch and why Elle Magazine raved about Fisher-Wallace technology. Go to fisherwallace.com slash happy hour and use the coupon code mental to save 10% on a purchase today. That's fisherwallace.com slash happy hour, promo code mental. Uh, and then finally, this is from the misophonia uh, which is sound sensitivity for those that aren't familiar with the term. Um, misophonia survey, and this is filled out by, oh, I believe we've read uh, some of her surveys in the past, a woman who calls herself Crunchy Brain. And uh, what noises trigger you? Loud eating, slurping, tapping, whistling, when someone continuously clears their throat but won't just fucking cough. Lip smacking, nail tapping, loud typing. Is your relationship with the person making the noise affected by their noises? 100%. My husband eats like a cow and I feel rage and disgust when I'm around him while he's eating. That's going to be hard. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity? Sometimes. I have friends who suffer similarly, but most people I know don't understand my issue with hearing people eat in particular. What have been the reactions uh, when you've told people? Some people tell me they aren't comfortable eating around me or tell me, to be honest, if they are eating too loud. 
that just makes me feel guilty and weird. My husband gets angry and tells me that it's my problem, not his. Even though I understand his point, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask him to chew with his mouth closed or to not talk with his mouth full. I do not think that's unreasonable. Uh, do you have other sensory sensitivities? I am sensitive to bright lights and strong smells, but I don't have a reaction to those issues like I do with sounds. Have you ever struggled with food issues? And by the way, this survey um, was compiled, the questions were compiled by um, a listener who deals with misophonia. They had asked, have you ever done a survey on that? And I said, it sounds like a good idea, but I'm not sure what questions I would ask. And so they came up with these. And they the, the food issue uh, they thought uh, would be a good question to eat because quite a few fellow misophonia sufferers, uh, they said, um, also had food issues. And some people think that uh, occasionally there's a correlation between the two. I don't know. I'm not a therapist, but I cook chicken on basic cable TV. Uh, have you ever struggled with food issues? Yes. I have a binge eating disorder slash sugar addiction. I associate eating with doing something wrong. How long have you had misophonia? As long as I can remember. But I do remember writing a haiku in high school about my mom who ate loudly. Uh, how many times a day do you get triggered? Several. Almost every meal. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond? Absolutely. I feel like I'm weird and sick and that the people around me suffer from me being intolerable to them. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical health disorder or issue? And if so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? I've had so many diagnoses over the years, and nothing has really stuck. My chart says that I'm bipolar with BPD, anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenic, manic, and depressed. I'm assuming one of those things is true and has to do with my misophonia. Do you have a history of trauma? Uh, yes, I was sexually abused several times uh, since my early teens. When I was 13, I started meeting men online who were in their 30s and 40s, and they would pick me up at my school or in the middle of the night. My mother came home. My mother came from a family that was unable to talk about their emotions, but she did the best that she could. I never felt like I could open up to her completely, though. My father was an alcoholic and crossed lines of mental, physical, and sexual abuse. Did you ever experience trauma to the ear, for instance, a loud sound, prior to the onset of your misophonia? No. However, my father is deaf in his right ear, and I have, quote, fake deafness, unquote, in the same ear. I'm not sure what she means by that. Uh, have you tried any kind of therapy, therapy medication or tools for your misophonia? Not yet. I've brought it up several times to various providers, but they don't seem to want to focus on that particular issue or do not perceive it to be real. Thank you so much for your uh, your survey. Um, and I, I was just thinking about your, um, <laughs> your writing haiku poems about your mom's loud eating in high school. And I got inspired. Your mouth, a rifle. Your chewing gum, the bullets. I'm slain by Dentine. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. 
I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I am here with Winston Panjon. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. It's, it's spelled P-I-N-G-E-O-N, and I would have never imagined that it's pronounced uh, uh, the way it is. I can't imagine how many people call you Winston Pigeon. Yes. So um, Swiss, actually, but French language. Okay. How are you doing? today uh you've been you've been through a lot and even though it was uh you know over over a year ago um actually over two years ago um i imagine it yeah it, it doesn't go away quickly yes so it's crazy that i'm approaching one year of having left the capitol police and yeah this january will be two years um but it still often does feel like January 6th was just yesterday, but I'm doing well. You know, it's been definitely a journey of just kind of recovering from the trauma from that day. Um, and as well as some other traumas from the job. Um, but, you know, overall, I feel very fortunate to have served my time that I did there over five years and have moved past it and continue to kind of move past it and grow from that experience. Uh, what led you to uh, want to become um, a Capitol police officer? So I'd actually wanted to be a police officer pretty much my whole life. There was always something in me that just felt that I just had that interest. Um, and I did some ride-alongs when I was in high school. Um, and when I went to college in Washington, D.C., I did a few different internships there with the D.C. Metropolitan Police um, and a juvenile justice nonprofit and also a federal law enforcement agency. So I kind of wanted to get the whole picture of what the criminal justice system looked like at different capacities. Um, but really what it came down to was senior year of college, I had a goal that I wanted a job when I walked across the stage at graduation. I, I did not want to graduate and be thrown into this crazy world with no plan. And how many so, years ago was this? How old are you? I'm 29 now. So I graduated college in 2016. Um, and so I had applied to, I'd never even heard of the Capitol Police until I moved to D.C., uh, now 10 years ago. And when I interned with the DC police, the city police, I really thought, you know, this is it, this is what I want to do. But as 
time kind of came closer to graduation, I looked at some of the benefits and the pay. Capitol Police kind of swayed me with this idea of being a federal agency and some better training opportunities, a higher starting salary. Um, but I applied to both and really Capitol Police just hired me the fastest. And so I kind of was able to achieve that goal. And by April, a month before graduation, I had that job offer. And so I graduated and three weeks later went down to Southern Georgia to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, where I spent the first half of my training. Uh, it was a long, long, hot summer down there. When you were doing the ride-alongs and you were experiencing all these uh, different situations before you uh, became uh, a Capitol Police officer, had you did you witness any things that gave you pause about the integrity of some law enforcement personnel? No. I really didn't, thankfully. Um, I did hear some stories about other officers making mistakes and, you know, that there were issues in uh, some departments. As in making mistakes, as in excessive as in, use of know, force? Not so much use of force, but I'm sure uh, I'm, I was just sort of thinking um, some stories about basically dirty cops, whether they were you know, stealing from people or doing you know illegal searches on them or that kind of thing. I'd sort of heard okay. through the grapevine. Um, and, you know, that was 10 years ago. So fortunately, like in my own career, I never witnessed that. And, you know, the Capitol Police, not everybody's perfect, of course, but as a whole, I mean, the agency is really full of good people who are there for the right reasons, doing the job because they care and they do want to serve. Um, and want to help others. So let's go back to um, that day, starting with uh, when you woke up. Was it uh, a typical day or were were you kind of on edge because of the protests? So, well, maybe we should back up a little bit further. Or a little back bit up earlier, as far mind. back as you want. We can go back to your parents' meeting if you want. <laughs> well, so when I joined the Capitol Police, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is going to be sort of a um, different experience than becoming a D.C. street cop in the city. But, uh, but I was excited about the different things that they had, like, a, you know, being right there protecting Congress at the Capitol, witnessing all of the historical events that come with the building. Um, when I got out of training, um, I was assigned to the midnight shift, which I was on for almost nine months. And it was just incredibly boring and difficult working 11 PM to 7 AM. And I thought, you know, well, is this really what I wanted? Um, but I then was able to get off to work the evening shift with weekends off. So then I thought, okay, this actually really isn't so bad. I like the schedule and I really like the people I work with and it's cool. I never even really knew much about politics at all, who the speaker of the house was, anything. I, it just sort of never was that of interest to me. Um, and so then, you know, after a couple of years there come sort of 
early 2020, I'd started thinking, okay, what's next for my career? And applied to a few different other federal agencies trying to maybe get promoted to the sort of special agent level. Um, but then of course COVID hit and I thought, well, I should really be thankful for what I have, a good paying job, federal benefits, uh, not being laid off. In fact, I'm working a lot of overtime. Um, and I thought, oh, working from home, that doesn't really sound appealing to me because I enjoyed working as, with a team and interacting with my coworkers and the public every day too. So um, that fall, so come the election, the 2020 election, there were two main protests that came to the Capitol. Uh, one, the first one was the weekend immediately following the election that President Biden had won. And there was a large amount of people who came to the Capitol who were Trump supporters and were not happy uh, with the results of the election. And there was a counter protesting group who were uh, members of Black Lives Matter, Antifa, um, group there. And so we basically stood in a line between them and pretty much that summer, most of the sort of riots happened in DC downtown, not near the Capitol. So we didn't really, um, little bits here and there, but we didn't really, we really overall were not involved in any Black Lives Matter protests riots, whatever they, whatever you want to call them or what they were until the election. And so that day, that first one really kind of felt like this powder keg was just about to burst you know, that the little line that we had between these two groups was not going to withstand anger, particularly from the uh, Trump supporters that they would tell us, you know, well, we back the blue, we respect you, but they're right in my face screaming that because they're mad at the guys standing right behind me. So that was kind of the first the guys indicator. right behind you being the Congress people. Well, well that, but also the uh, black lives matter sort of Antifa. Type oh, I see. Okay. That we were basically. Um, keeping so you're talking about the day after the election, not January 6th. Correct. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> um, and so. It was, and I remember one of my coworkers, uh, a friend of mine saying, and he's a black officer, not that that really matters, but he was saying, you know, at least with the Antifa people, we know that they hate us. They do not like the police. And you know, that's just the way it is. He said, these Trump people, they're dangerous though, because you don't really know. They'll tell you that they support you, but they might have a gun or, and it kind of, I, I never really thought of it before because we'd never really had to. Um, but that kind of stuck with me uh, th through January 6th uh, and beyond. So after that, there was one other demonstration in December, 2020, but there was no counter group. So a large group of Trump supporters came up around the Capitol marching with their signs. Um, I'm sure there probably were members of the Proud Boys Oath Keepers and other groups in that crowd, but I can't say for sure. Um, and then because there was no counter protest group, uh, they left without incident and it was pretty peaceful. 
So um, I was able to go home for Christmas of 2020, which is something I couldn't always do just with the nature of the job and holidays. And so I went back, my first day back at work in the new year was January, Monday, January 4th. And at this time I was still working the evening shift primarily, but I was assigned to our civil disturbance unit, our CDU in full riot gear as a collateral duty. So if we knew a group was going to be coming earlier in the day or a weekend, my squad, my team would get drafted to work early. So I knew that I was working a long day on the 6th. Um, and where I lived in DC was about a mile from the Capitol. So I used to often bike or walk to work. Um, but when I woke up that morning, I thought, well, I think I'm just going to drive because it, it might be a long day. So I did, thankfully. Um, and I'd seen people around Capitol Hill those two previous days um, with Trump flags and stuff. But, and I'd sort of heard mumblings, oh, January 6th, this and that. But we worked so many protests and were involved in so many sort of political events that it didn't, I'd never anticipated anything like that actually happening. I thought, you know, yeah, maybe we'll have to, you know, maybe some people will get pepper sprayed. We'll, we will have to arrest some people. Um, but the fact that people would breach the Capitol and be so violent towards us, that never crossed my mind until it literally was too late and happening to me and my fellow officers. So take us back to um, when it kicked off, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So the, we had a roll call in the morning. A lot of people, you know, ask like, Oh, what did you guys think about? Or what, what, why weren't you more prepared? What did you expect? And so, and I can talk about this freely now because I, I'm no longer employed by them. Whereas most officers cannot speak to any kind of press or media without going through the proper channels. But that morning, um, our lieutenant told us, yeah, well, we'll just be on standby, have your gear ready, but we, you know, we probably won't put it on. We'll just sort of see. Um, but a group is probably coming to the Capitol um, and they might be angry or, you know, we'll, we'll see. So at some point, a couple hours later, we, we did get the call to, to put our gear on. So it was about noon that I got dressed fully in my gear and we staged on the North side of the Capitol. And as we were getting dressed, actually, there were members of the proud boys walking by and filming us that I've since seen video afterwards. Um, this what, was still, what was, the, what was their purpose in filming you to kind of see what they were up against? Yeah, I don't, well, I don't really know. Um, but did they say anything to you? Not to me specifically, because um, I was sort of further back from the street that they were on. Um, but even still, it wasn't like my, there weren't still really red flags to me yet. Uh, I mean, maybe there should have been clearly, but um, so we got dressed and basically just waited, parked on a, our one of our Capitol Police buses on the north side. And 
you know, we're kind of just hanging out laughing and just like we normally would do a lot of our friends just, um, just passing the time. I think a couple people had on their phones, the live stream of what was going on at the ellipse of Trump's speech. But by and large, we were not really concerned with that. Um, and it wasn't until right about one o'clock. So it had been like an hour that we'd been on standby waiting that I heard the call on the radio that the first line had been breached and they needed backup. Um, so we went and we basically cut just to the north side of the um, west front of the Capitol. And what, what do you remember thinking or feeling when the words came in, the first line's been breached? I remember being, well, at that point, I just thought we need to go. I just remember wanting to go, you know, like, like, why is this taking so long? Where is everybody? Like we, you know, that one person had gone, was in the bathroom or something. We're like, we need to get, we need to go. That was the sense of urgency. I just felt this overwhelming urge to help, you know, to go do my job. And so when we got off the bus, basically on the Northwest corner of the Capitol, either on the radio or somehow the someone had said something about there being gas, tear gas that had been deployed. It wasn't clear whether it was from us or from them, but the decision was made not even by my lieutenant, just by another officer, one of the more senior officers on my squad. He's like, just put your gas masks on everyone. And I had never done that uh, outside of a training environment. And when you are wearing a gas mask and you're wearing what felt like 50 pounds of gear, heavy helmet and full sort of football, like hockey style pads, it, it sort of drowns out the noise of this crowd. And um, so we marched to the Lower West Terrace. And I just remember hearing my breath as I was walking and short, I mean, and we'd barely kind of gotten our masks on and moved forward when I saw the first dead body of that day, which was an individual who had suffered some kind of medical event. I believe it was a heart attack, um, which I found out later and they were doing CPR on him. And uh, yeah, we lined up as best we could to protect the building um, with DC police and other Capitol police squads from other divisions. And before I knew it, you know, we started to be, attacked by the crowd and pepper sprayed and assaulted, but it wasn't immediately. We, we had the line there and, you know, people were antagonizing me and my fellow officers saying things like we back the blue, but you guys are on the wrong side of history. You know, you took an oath, but you need to take your badge off and be on art. You're on the wrong side and things like your boss, president Trump sent us here. And we don't want to hurt you, but we will. We're, you, we're getting inside that building. What do you remember thinking about what they said as a citizen, not as a Capitol Police officer? Well, I remember it's hard because when I'm there in that uniform to do that job, I don't I feel like I didn't really think as a 
citizen. I am thinking only as a police officer in that moment. Now, you know, when I look back on it, I'm thinking these people are totally crazy in that they've traveled, some of them from as far away as across the country to support someone who's just lied to them continually and riled them up to go attack police officers and break into our nation's symbol of democracy. And so that's kind of what I think now. But in that moment, I remember thinking, basically, these people are idiots. And but I was feeling because one guy in particular, he saw that I that I had my hand on my baton and he tried to kind of single me out and get in my face. And, and uh, he was like, you know, you're scared. And um, saying the other things that he, he told me he was a Navy veteran. So he served our, our country and, but that I'm not serving it the right way or something like that. And I remember thinking, I'm not scared of you because you're one person and you don't have any gear on, although some of his friends and colleagues in the crowd did. But I remember thinking, I am scared because there are a lot of people here. And it just, the crowd kept growing really like by the minute. So what happened next? So after about, probably about an hour of being out there is when it just devolved into total chaos. Um, another man basically right in the same area, suffered also a heart attack. And I remember our guys were trying to kind of go and help him. Some of our uniformed officers who were not in full ride gear. And I don't know if it was them or some of the firefighters, but brought a, an AED device. And I remember it shocking him and seeing his body flailing. Um, and at that point, things just went nuts and people started pepper spraying us and the the officers that I was with we sort of just the line broke and so there was no us against them it was just this mess of of people and a small amount of police so i ended up on the north on the upper west terrace and i came around the corner and I was horrified to see that people were streaming into the building. And this was the first breach point that was, there's a video of Don Pozzola of the Proud Boys using one of our riot shields to smash a window. So it was that um, initial breach that I went to, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes right after that had happened. Not the timeline already gets a little blurry, but um and I was leading my squad. So I thought I had another 20 or 30 officers behind me and we just had to go. Like they're getting into the building. We have to stop them. Um, and at this point, they'd also breached another door that was sort of perpendicular to that, an emergency exit that someone had maybe gone inside and then pushed to open to let more people in. And so I went to that door, which was the first door that I could get to. Um, and at that point, that's where I was attacked. And before I knew it, I was punched in the face from my left. And then as I sort of tried to turn to, to face that guy, someone hit me from my right too. And I couldn't really even see what came at me. But before I knew it, I was on my back 
and either someone was on top of me or my helmet had kind of come down, but I couldn't really see. Um, I remember in that moment really thinking that I was going to die. And all I could do was just to protect my gun and make sure nobody, you know, as best I could and nobody take my gun from me Um, because I had my baton out and I wasn't even striking anyone with it. I just was sort of had it parallel to my arm as I kind of pushed my way in to get to the door. But we really were still being way less aggressive than we should have been. But my baton was stolen from me in that scuffle so easily that I thought, man, if they could get my baton that quick, which has a big L-shaped handle from it, and I've got a pretty good grip on it with two hands, then they definitely could get my gun. So I was able to get up. We were able to secure that door. And I think the only reason that we were not further assaulted and or killed was because they had another entry point just maybe 20 feet from us. So they thought, okay, well, that, that door's closed. There's still this other one we smashed into. So we'll go in there. But they still were throwing things at us, like bits of food and batteries. And, and you know, this was exactly two weeks before the inauguration. So the inauguration stage was still being built. So there were construction tools uh, all around, hammers and bits of wood, two by fours, that kind of thing. So if they hadn't brought it, there was plenty of other tools left there uh, from construction that they had to use against us also. And then after that, one of my other officers that I was with, the, the, the other, it was only four of us, maybe five. And they'd also faced similar attack and gear being, you know, helmets being ripped off their head and trying to pull the gas mask off and that kind of thing. But I'm just, I kind of froze in that moment because I just didn't know what to do. I mean, we had not trained for this. And so um, one of my friends who I'm still very close with to this day kind of said, okay, we got to go. Like, what are, what are the four of us going to do in against hundreds? So we made it, um, we, we made it into the building and the timeline again, kind of gets a little bit fuzzy, but um, the, it just, continued to be kind of hand-to-hand combat with these people in the halls of the Senate chamber. We barricaded up against that same door that I'd just been outside protecting. And I remember dodging between their pepper spraying me and I'd, I'd bring my head to the right to avoid a pe- you know a stream of pepper spray and then back to the left because the flagpole came and s- stabbing you know, right by my face. And because I was in right gear, I had pushed some other officers who were just in their normal uniforms behind me because at least I had a helmet on, at least I had some other protection, but again, you know, pressed up against that door, the alarm is blaring the the door breach alarm. You know, there's, they're screaming at us. The radio is blaring with of officers who need help across the building. Um, Shots fired officer down, you know, officer Brian Sicknick and I ended up in the tunnel, which is where some of the worst fighting occurred and some of the worst police injuries occurred. 
mostly to the DC police, um, but also to Capitol. And by the time I got there, I witnessed some DC police officers who were severely injured, ones who had lost their fingers or they're sort of hanging, uh, an officer who had lost his eye, an officer whose helmet had been smashed in and had a huge dent in it. And the, the plastic plexiglass visor was completely split down the middle into shatter, you know, zigzag shatter, looking like he'd gotten a direct blow from a baseball bat to his head. There was pepper spray, tear gas, all sorts of vomit, you know, blood all over the floors and the walls. And um, at that point, I remember hearing a sergeant or somebody screaming for to get fresh officers to the front. And I remember thinking, that is not me. Like, I am not fresh. I'm, I'm exhausted. I didn't even know what time it was. Um, but I knew it was, it was starting to get dark. So it had been, it was hours. And at that point, a squad from the Virginia State Police had showed up and a few other surrounding DC suburb police departments. And um, I remember them kind of pushing past me and uh, just still in like utter disbelief that this was, this was going on, you know, thinking about kind of my own mortality and survival of that day before I went down to the tunnel. At one point I was able to escape to a bathroom uh, on the Senate side of the Capitol. And it's this beautiful room with, you know, even the bathrooms are beautiful in the Capitol, like gold handles and marble. And, but I was able to send a text message to my family group chat, um, you know, I had a lot of texts from people saying, I hope you're okay. And uh, even though during that day, I don't think people, a lot of people realized how bad it was until a lot of the videos footage came out later. Uh, but people were still obviously rightfully concerned. And I was able to send a text to my family. You know, I still kind of, I still can get emotional about this now over a year, almost two years later, it still is very raw, but I told them that I had been attacked, but I was okay and that I love them, but that I had to go back, you know, I had to go back in. Um, and eventually I made it out to the Upper West Terrace, out of the tunnel, and we successfully pushed them back. I'm not sure if they'd been told by the former president to go home yet or not, but I remember seeing the National Guard roll up just painfully too late and uh, at this point it was dark and the building that i had spent years making so many personal sacrifices for to defend and serve was just totally destroyed it felt like all these broken windows fire extinguishers that we'd used to spray at them they'd used to spray and throw at us all of these wooden barricades, well, that became barricades, but really were wooden um, information sort of kiosks, if you will, of you know the history of the building that we then had to pull to use to try to blockade the doors. It just was this surreal moment of destruction um, and just devastation that we, the building... Capitol Police, DC Police, we just showed up to do our job that day, you know, all of us. And 
the amount of pain and damage that was caused was something that I could have never imagined. And it was certainly nothing I ever expected when I showed up that first day, 2016, and took my oath to protect and defend the Constitution. First of all, I'm sorry that you had to experience that. I, I, I can't I can't imagine what that must have been like. You know, I having seen the news and video and read so much about it, I thought I had an accurate picture of what it must have been like to be there. But from the detailed descriptions that you offer, it's so much more horrifying than I than I thought. Um, but a question that I feel obliged to ask, because I think it crossed the minds of most sensible people is the amount of restraint, the difference between that and the black lives matter protests. I think so many of us immediately thought people would have been shot by the dozens if these rioters or black. And what when you hear me ask that, what do you think? And I'm not talking about would you have personally shot them because yeah. they were black. But I mean the difference is so stark in law enforcement reaction between white rioters and black rioters. Yeah. I mean I, I think it's I think it's unfortunate that the disparity exists so clearly, like you said. Um, I think a part of that is was more about the abject failure of intel sharing between federal agencies that should have better informed the Capitol Police and that the Capitol Police should have better implemented to properly protect the building that day. But I think that part part of the difference there, and again, you know, I'm, I was not a city cop, like I was not a street cop for most of my career. I mean, I got to do a little bit of that, but that was not, um, that was not the, my mission or my purpose as an officer on that department. But part of the difference there was that I think no one expected that the crowd would be so violent and so brutal and so bent on actually getting into the building like they were. Whereas with some riots that are just truly city riots, there's at least oftentimes there's something has happened before, which then leads to a larger police presence. There was property damage or there were officers who were assaulted. And, and that's not to defend, that's not to say that that's okay or that's the right thing to do always. But um, I do think it's difficult to compare Black Lives Matter rioting to January 6th on both sides. You know, some people, some people on the right would say, would use, would use the summer riots before as, as a talking point. Well, you know, well, what about the whole sort of whataboutism? Well, what about Black Lives Matter that they burned down these cities all summer long and that, and nobody seemed to care. And then, oh, well, it was just a little riot at the Capitol. So what about that? So I, I'm, I mean, personally, I feel like they are just different. They're very different. The, um, but unfortunately, both did involve violence at some points and were 
political, you know, had politics um, involved as well. So there, you know, there are some similarities, I suppose, in in what a riot can look like, um, you know, because I do feel like a lot of the people that were there that day did not necessarily intend to enact, do criminal acts or engage in acts of violence against, particularly against police, but perhaps got swept up into that kind of mob mentality and did things that I hope they would have never done without that. And I hope that they realized what they did was wrong because I think everyone makes mistakes. It's, Mm -hmm. I know everyone does. Couldn't you also, couldn't you also say that about the black lives matter, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to attack you, but you know, you're almost inferring there that people that commit violence at Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, events, uh, riots, clashes with police, as if they had made up their mind that they were going to be uh, violent. No, that's that's not what I'm trying to infer. Um, you, you could absolutely say that for both. Yeah. And I feel like really for me, you know, I was an officer. I was not a chief, a captain, you know, the power I feel like from my story is just what I saw and heard. So those are sort of my thoughts on that, but um, it's just, it's hard for me to say because I never commanded a unit or a district or, you know, a division of, of riot control. You know, I just, did what I, I followed my marching orders as, as a boots on the ground. Gotcha. So walk me through post insurrection. So what, what did it feel like when you got, when you got, you took your gear off, you went home, describe emotionally and mentally and physically, especially what you're experiencing. Are your, are your hands shaking? Or do you know? Do you feel numb? Do you feel sad? Do you feel angry? The best way that I have described, you know, how I felt really for the next two to three months was that I just kind of drifted, and that I just existed in that I would go to work the next day, seven a.m. or maybe it was even earlier after having barely slept all night, not getting home until 1, 2 a.m. the night before. And I was just absolutely exhausted for months. And I remember... Were you able to sleep? Because we were, I would be... I would sleep um, as best I could. But I think the real reason that I could was because I was working so much, 16-hour days, back to back, you know, between commuting and roll call and getting dressed that really only leaves about six hours of time not working. So I was, I was able to sleep, but I remember, you know, and it was also January, but getting out of the shower in the morning before I go to work and shaking because it was cold, but also in ways that I hadn't previously in December. Um, And was there a fear that this was going to happen again? Or did you feel like, no, we're on alert now, national troops, are engaged and ready it it the big threat is over no there absolutely was still the fear because it was just so unprecedented um 
there absolutely was the fear that it would happen again. I mean, we were, I was working with my riot team every day for months afterwards. I was not working my normal assignment. So, which goes to show that, you know, might've been a overreaction. And, and at this point, the national guard was bringing in hundreds of troops by the day. I think it was almost, it was over 25,000 soldiers were there at the peak of the inauguration and after which Capitol Hill infrastructure alone is not really meant for that many people to be there 24 seven living there. Um, but yeah, there was, but I do, I remember one day in particular getting pulled from my riot team to go stand, you know, stand a post at a door for one of the house office buildings. And I was in a rotation, which really meant kind of one hour on, hour or two off but i remember standing out there for an hour and then even after an hour or two of break of me sitting you know in our break room the idea of having to go out and just stand for another hour was like running a marathon and so i had another officer hey can you just go and take this for me i just can't i just can't go and i literally just can't even go stand for an hour because i'm so exhausted and it wasn't physical you know one of the one of the things that being somebody who thinks about mental health a lot, and especially through the prism of where we are societally and how the military and law enforcement kind of uh, still has this legacy that you just need to suck it up. And really the only attention being paid is, is somebody physically injured. And now that we know more about PTSD, uh, it just seems incredible that you would send somebody right back out there the next day without any kind of mental triage. Do you think that's going to change? I hope so. But at the same time, I have low expectations only because when you have an event like that, the needs of the department are such that they need everyone working. So which, there is which, no which, room. Right. Which is understandable in that it, in that that's where those were the facts at that time. But my thought is, can't we prepare in the future for, for whether it's the national guard or somebody else, some type of reinforcements. And I think about this on, on the police forces as as well. Um, you know, after somebody shoots somebody, um, even if it was justified, the toll that must take on somebody who is a sensitive human being uh, must be incredible. And I wonder, are there procedures in place uh, for people to take time off? And I also imagine that there is a feeling that I don't want to look quote unquote, weak in front of my peers. So I'm going to get right back on the job, which then leads me to think how many of these shootings of unarmed people um, are racism and how many are somebody whose central nervous system is going fucking bananas. And I don't think, honestly, it really matters what the reason is for, for somebody being unnecessarily shot, but um, 
it, it, if we don't if we don't start saying what is the root of this, um, is it systemic racism? Is it untreated PTSD? Is it a little bit of both? Uh, are we ever gonna grow as a as a society? Yeah. So I mean, what I'll say about that is the department they they tried um, they 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 made um, counselors available for all shifts, you know, 24 seven, not just day work. And they brought in peer support groups from other agencies. And I think most officers do feel that sense of shame with going to talk to someone. I certainly did. Um, I did not talk to any of the department provided people except, but I did talk to some of the peer support groups. Um, particularly one individual who was at a federal agency, who, but he started his career as a Capitol police officer. So he hadn't been there in 10 years, but he, at least he had been literally in my shoes before. And I just remember he was just this calming voice that encouraged me to get back to the routines in my life that I enjoyed and taking the time to do things that I liked, um, that I find relaxing my art, um, which I can talk, tell you more about. Um, but it is, there is a, there is definitely still that culture of toxic masculinity within the departments. And I think it, I think the, the things that make police officers not go and seek out mental help and counseling are some of those things are really good for the job. They're good. You want someone who is confident, brave, strong, decisive. You know, those things make good officers. Somebody who can They're, compartmentalize. Yeah. Yep. And, and someone who can just go on from the next, from one trauma to the next. I mean, literally go from a car accident and seeing a dead body to then, you know, helping grandma who's locked out of her car or something, you know, you mm -hmm. just, and, and it are still able to be compassionate to people. Um, but then it is a double edge there, you know, there, right. the other half of that is that you are not able to help yourself if you're so busy helping others. Um, I mean, and even for me personally, I have not been through trauma counseling since January 6th. I really haven't been through any, um, I met with one psychiatrist offered through my current job, um, who said, yes, you know, you definitely have PTSD or did have it or have symptoms. Um, but I have yet to explore that, but I do look forward to it. And I know it, it can't why, hurt. Why the wait? I think I just haven't been fully ready yet to. I mean, I can share the story with you and with others now, but to fully kind of unpack what it's meant for me in my life. And um, I don't, I, I don't feel like I've been totally ready yet. And I think also, um, you know, even having incredible health insurance through my current employer and great benefits and that kind of thing there. And, and there are a lot of good resources out there. I think finding the right person and the right fit, it can be also be a challenge. About, what, is your, well, what, what is your current job? 
I'm sorry, I cut you off. Try to uh, finish your thought if you can remember what it was. Oh, no, no. So um, my current job is working for in um, sales at a public safety software company. Um, so I that found them ve- because- That sounds very violent. <laughs> Thankfully, no. I work from home now, but it's it's been a great kind of, it's been a great career change because my- experience as an officer is relevant and valuable, but I'm doing obviously a completely different job, um, you know, working in tech. But what I'm most passionate about is my career, if you can call it that, as an artist and how important, you know, my art had always, I'm primarily a painter, watercolor painter, but it had always been there for me. You know, I think like many people's hobbies, it's there, you enjoy it you're, you're relaxed when you're doing it, you know, hours fly by. And, um, but it took on very much of a new meaning after January 6th, when I started, particularly when I painted my first self-portrait, um, of myself in my ceremonial uniform on inauguration day, standing exactly where I, I had stood two weeks prior on January 6th. And it just, I, I, immediately knew I couldn't stop doing this. I could not, I had to keep going and I still am painting and drawing about that day and creating. Isn't it ironic that the shit show drains our emotions in one way and then can just feed our art like a nuclear reactor. It is. And you know, some sometimes now I think, well, I haven't really felt that inspired in the last week or two, you know, maybe things are going too well. Like maybe my life is too good right now that I'm not feeling sad or anxious. Like I have a lot since then, um, that I don't want to create. Um, what are your favorite colors to use when you, when you paint particularly post January 6th? My definite favorite is called Payne's gray which is a sort of dark, very dark gray blue. Um, And in my watercolors, I actually never use black, although I did in my self-portrait of myself from the night of January 6th in riot gear, um, standing with the Capitol in the background. But there's something about the color black that's so harsh with watercolor and, and the transparency and opacity of the paint and that, Payne's gray was always kind of like the darkest color that I would go. And I don't know if that's symbolic or it wasn't, it definitely wasn't intentional, but, um, but I've, I've explored a handful of different concepts about that day of what officers look like that day myself and what the building looked like. And I've focused um, a few pieces on the uh, peace monument, which is a statue Actually, I believe it's commemorating uh, sailors in the Navy who died during the Civil War. And it's two figures, sort of Greek Roman type statue, one crying on the shoulder of the other, and it's grief weeping on the shoulders of history. And the first time I painted that, I used my artistic license to change the composition a bit, but include the barbed wire fence, the razor wire fence that soon encircled the Capitol immediately following the sixth. And 
the beauty of the Capitol dome in the background, contrasting with the harsh, ugly fence. And then the figures crying, the sort of strange, sad beauty with them. That's one of my favorite, sort of most important pieces that I've done to kind of express in ways that I could never in words how I've felt about that day and how I've kind of moved on. And I, I think that's such a great example of the complexity of emotions and feelings, you know, holding two almost completely disparate things at the same time. And I think that's one of the struggles in mental health is to step out of the either or black and white thinking and realize that, you know, there, there can sometimes be meaning left in the wake of horror or tragedy. Mm-hmm. Not that that makes it worth it, but um, it's, I, I suppose, one of the bittersweet things about being a human being in a, in a, world like like we live in have you felt a part of your soul whatever you want to call it come alive i don't know what the word would be since january 6th maybe some part of you that had been dormant or you'd never experienced before kind of present itself and don't let me put words in your mouth or you know um lead you to say something just because you want to you don't want to say no feel free to say no you're <laughs> yeah so i mean i i what i will say i do feel like sadly there is my life before january 6th and my life after i think we all go through traumatic events that where we feel the world has just stopped and yet it keeps going for everyone else. Um, and it definitely was, it, it was that moment for me. And I think, I hope that someday it will not feel like that. It will just feel like my life kept mm-hmm. going and that there was not this point. But what I haven't also, what I haven't really gotten to touch on too is in addition to serving on our ceremonial unit, our honor guard team for the inauguration, I also served on, I, I served on it for um, the, end of my career, the past few years of my career. And what came with that also was all of the funerals for people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That was my first state funeral that I worked um, guarding her casket in the Capitol during her um, lying in state ceremony. But then also for Officer Brian Sicknick, uh, I was a pallbearer for Officer Howie Liebengood, who took his own life shortly after January 6th. And then for Officer Evans, who was killed separately um, in April of last year, I didn't work the funerals for some of the DC police officers who died by suicide after, but those ceremonies of standing before a casket in the rotunda of the United States Capitol, I mean, those are the moments that I will remember forever, for better or for worse. I mean, the, it was a privilege for me to, to, to support the families of Brian and Billy and Howie. Um, but it was incredibly difficult, you know, to stand there and be that just kind of statue almost of just standing perfectly still until the changing of the guard ceremony would rotate. But, you know, and I, and that's what, then that was my job for the inauguration too. I stood in that same tunnel guarding the hallway as the Obamas, Bushes, Clintons, Bidens, obviously all came 
were like just right in front of me in arms reach out. And President Biden came back for Officer Sicknick's funeral and delivered remarks also for Officer Evans' funeral, Billy's in April. And this is kind of going off from your question, but um, but you know, that uniform and that that experience did shape some of my art too, in the in in that it I hope that my art kind of honors the beauty and symbolism of the Capitol. You know, it's not just a building. It really isn't. And, um, and the Capitol Police really is a family in a lot of ways, in ways that now me working in the private sector, it just, it's so different. You know, jobs like, like mine now, desk, you know, office jobs do not you just, you'll never have that same bond as you will with someone who just saved your life or you just saved theirs, or you spent holidays with midnights with, you know, you're missing birthdays and all sorts of family, you know, your kids are growing up and you're not always there. And did you you have any conversations with your peers, people who were there that day with you, uh, afterwards where there was any kind of vulnerability or discussion of emotions or opening up there were a lot of discussions or whatever even just rehashing it if you can recall kind of the emotional temperature of those or things that were said if there were any i remember i mean we definitely talked about it a lot and i i recall the sort of most immediate um response from a lot of us was what we need to do mission oriented goals. Well, we need this. We need the, they need to enforce the windows better. We got to get like metal grates that come down and protect all the doors. We need this. We need that. In terms of officers being vulnerable, there was not a lot of that, but I think and this sort of goes back to the culture. Um, I do think that among a few of us, friends in particular, there was an understanding that this was hard. And um, some people did just did not want to talk about it. And that was their way of dealing with it. I was much more open to talking about it, even right after, not everything, but, um, but in some ways, it was almost like, what is there to say? You know, we, we were just all so exhausted, and just so beat down, particularly like in a group setting, no I don't remember anyone opening up or sharing. And I don't think that's to say that if someone had, they would have been rejected. I don't think that at all. I really think that the people that I worked with would welcome and support our coworkers, our peers who needed it. I actually don't talk about this a lot, but the first trauma that happened to me with the Capitol Police was the death of one of my friends, my first Capitol Police friend. Uh, to suicide in the fall of 2017. And it was there, it was at her funeral that I saw the ceremonial unit offering their services, you know, and, and providing the honors. And it wasn't a line of suicides are never line of duty deaths, even if they are pretty clearly related. So there is not full honors. There is not a line in state or a massive motorcade procession but but there were some um and it was there that i saw that unit doing what they were doing and i thought i want to do that it was like one of those moments that i'm like this i i want to do this i want to be able to support 
her family like in this way. And so I did, I was fortunate enough to join the unit. Um, but I never thought that I would be actually working funerals of suicides or line of duty deaths. It just never, I mean, I knew that it was a possibility, but I kind of thought, well, it's, it's just, it's not going to happen here. Yeah. You know, unfortunately we might have to do like a DC police officer's death um, or a surrounding area would go to them, you know, but I never thought it was going to be so important to me. And it could, because after the sixth, it really felt like I went from riot gear to my normal uniform to my ceremonial uniform and back. It was like, I never knew which day what was going to happen because I was working basically every day and the funerals kind of just kept happening or things kept happening. And, um, and then I'd be right back to riot gear. And um, so I'll say, you know, by March, I'd started to kind of get some clarity. Like I'd started to kind of come out, but then, Billy was killed on April 2nd and I remember hearing the shots fired call on the radio and just going and just running. And I didn't know him personally, but, um, what was it him taking his life? Uh, no. So officer Evans was killed by a vehicle that struck him that drove, uh, into one of our barricades on the North side of the Capitol. And then he, the driver jumped out with a knife and was shot and killed. And this was in Mar- March of 2021. This was April. Of 2021, April, 2021, early April. Okay. Yep. And it was, and, um, uh, and it was, uh, somebody protesting the election. Or no, don't it, know why. Yeah. I, I believe there may have been a connection to, um, I don't want to speak incorrectly, but I, I think there was a Muslim brotherhood connection that he had. Um, but it was, a, I want to say it was a 25 year old, um, and he just drove his car right at two officers and ran them down and one did not survive. And um, so it, it was, it was unrelated to January 6th gotcha. or that, but um, obviously no less tragic. And yeah. um, you know, he had children and um, but again, it, as difficult as working those funerals were um, those three in particular, I still feel so honored and so thankful and really privileged to have been on that unit in particular um, to represent the department, you know, in my formal class A uniforms. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even January 6th, I feel despite the negative consequences that came from that in my life and still come from it, I still, I'm still glad I was there strangely I didn't sign up for that, but I did sign up to protect and serve. And that's what I did my best to do that day. So I'm still thankful that I have the ability to, to serve in that role and, and to be there as strange as that might sound. That doesn't sound strange. And yeah. You know, I think a lot of police officers who, who do the job for the right reasons would probably yeah. say the same. You know, I mean, if I'd been on vacation or I'd, you know, my Christmas vacation stayed longer and I didn't come back to work until after, I mean, I know of officers who were not there that day for whatever reason, who do feel very guilty, uh, you know, that they weren't. Um, And I feel bad for them because it's not their fault, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, but at the same time, I am 
thankful that I was there. And and I guess sort of back to my art, I I don't think that it unleashed this great creativity in me that I never knew I had. I don't, I wouldn't say that, but what it just did do was be there for me when I needed it, you know, when I needed to feel better and so the process of it rather than the result of it. Well, both actually the process yeah. definitely, but then um, the support of others, you know, seeing my work that that has been incredible. So it's not so much like, you know, these January six pieces are not framed on my walls. I don't want to look at them daily. I do. It's, they're not, I mean, they're beautiful. I like, I would hope to think they're beautiful in ways, but they're not. Um, yeah. They're, they're not like in my living room. Right. Um, but the amount of support that I received and people saying, Oh, well, you know, are you going to make prints of this? Are you going to, mm-hmm. well, are is this for sale? I'm thinking, wow, like you really want to spend your own hard earned money on something that I made. I mean, like that, that was incredible. And getting to donate three paintings to the Smithsonian American history museum. Really? Before I left, before I left DC. Yep. Wow. That was incredible. Wow. And I also gave them, go ahead. I gave them my boots that I wore that day and the boots are still pretty much in the same shape that they were like there's salt kind of caked in the bottom. You know, it's January, there's salt all over the ground. Um, There's bits of white sort of flakes. I don't know if it's salt or tear gas or whatever it was, but um, they're pretty rough, but I gave, I gave them boots, my boots um, and then a few other little patches and, coins and that kind of thing and it's not on display but someday it will be i don't even know if in my lifetime but it's a huge honor particularly as an artist to have work that is in any smithsonian is incredible that i'm so thankful um but also my stuff that you know i hope that the story can be told someday when our political climate is not so divisive and so dangerous like it is today, unfortunately. Is there a website where uh, we can put a link for people to see your art? Yes. My website is winstonwatercolors.com. And I try to update it as much as I can, but my Instagram, Winston Watercolors, and my Etsy shop, also the same name. That's where my work is most updated and current. Okay. Well, buddy, I I appreciate you uh, sharing all of this and thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. It really, like I said, it was my, it was my privilege and it was the adventure of a lifetime. And I, and I do miss it a lot, but, um, but I also feel it's not mutually exclusive that I made the right choice in leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is this the only website you have, uh, the Winston Watercolors? Yes. Okay. All right. And you gave us your social media uh, as well. Um, buddy, great, great talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate you. Very, very nice talking to him. And um, yeah, the show notes will have all of those links that uh, that we talked about. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a uh, is this a woman? Is this, um, they are questioning, and then in parentheses, she, they. Um, 
She calls herself Bob Dylan's long lost child. And uh, the issues are bulimia, complex PTSD, addiction, and a myriad of health issues, including chronic pain. What has helped you deal with them? Reading memoirs of other people with the same or similar issues. Music appreciation, uh, in the parentheses, has helped me gain some sense of identity, distracted me, helped me understand deep and complex emotional experiences, helped me connect with others, kept me engaged with the world. Also, journaling and writing poetry, giving me an outlet to express myself, a sense of privacy and control. What if I, you know, it, it, it's amazing how easy it is to mistake something that gives us a sense of control that's unhealthy for something that gives us a sense of control that's healthy. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm trying to control how you interpret that. What, if anything, have people said or done that it's helped you? Friends that have been extremely vulnerable about their own struggles, people in 12-step programs that continue to reach out even after I fell off the wagon, having uh, support calls and FaceTimes with friends to help each other get through the day. It didn't matter what we talked about or if we spoke at all, just being there. A friend used to pick me up almost every day of the week to drive me to an early morning meeting, even though I had a car, but just because I needed the accountability to get out of bed. I love that. I fucking love that. My God, that is so good. This is an email that I got uh, from a woman named Lorena, and she writes, Hello, sir. Can you fuck my pussy? My party goes on day and night. If you're interested, you can register for free. See our details and full profile with pictures. Um, well, in the words of my English teacher, um, I can, but I won't. And I don't know if that sinks in. I don't know how much schooling you and your pussy have had. But um, the fact that it says you, you're, my party goes on day and night, and that concerns me that both of you are not getting proper rest. And I'm going to recommend, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to recommend cocaine or at the very least that party you got going on, a little catnap on the pile of coats. And then, the you know, the other thing you say, see our details and full, pro- do, do you mean our details, do you mean the people at the party or you and your pussy? I await clarification because those two do not have similar organization skills. And I'm not going to say which one's better. And at the bottom it says, sent for my iPhone, exclamation point. And I don't know if that means that you're excited to have a new iPhone or you're angry that you're away from your desktop and having to use your iPhone and lashing out at the world, Lorena. Can't blame us for everything, Lorena. This is a from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Scrap Crow. And he identifies as pansexual. He's in his 20s. Uh, he says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been sexually abused? Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. And also another instance where some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He writes, as a child, I had a hidden, physically intimate relationship with my older sister's friend. Uh, I was between 6 and 7, and she was between 12 and 14. It was mostly just laying in beds, under blankets, exploring each other's genitals and bodies. 
At the time, nothing felt uncomfortable or odd, and to this day, it felt more like a repressed, pubescent girl finding comfort in controlled sexual interaction with an innocuous male. I only really considered it sexual assault after I realized, what if the little girl, what if this was a little girl telling me this story? Uh, And it's remembered as a positive experience for me. Still, uh, more recently, I had a close, at the time, friend who I shared many an experience with, meeting in high school, even getting him hired at two separate jobs. We were so close, he felt comfortable coming out to me and the friend group. Uh, but our relationship ended after three separate instances of us sleeping in the same bed, which I do with all my friends and have since done since middle school, and me waking up with his hand down my pants, my dick out, or some combination thereof. It hurt mostly because I've been experimental in the past, even exploring oral and mutual masturbation with a different bisexual member of the group, but it seemed like he needed the force and cover of night to enjoy it, as well as being the second time this has happened to our friend group. Yeah, that is that is definitely uh, not, not cool. Not cool. Um... Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's a good, you know, um, question to ask yourself. That You know, the thing with the, the girl when you were six and she was 12 or so is to say, what if the roles were reversed? And it wasn't until I started doing that, um, looking back at my childhood, that I was able to say, oh, yeah, that would be super fucked up. He's been emotionally abused. I don't really know how to say it without a conversation, but I had a very strict controlling grandmother that took custody after my parents lost custody through a combination of mental illness and drug addiction. My own struggles to express myself and find an identity became highly explosive under her repressive nuclear-slash-boomer-centric parenting style. Now, I think she might have been suffering from OCD or other complexes that especially got worse in the interim because my grandpa dying and her taking custody of me. Because people seem to think my stories were exaggerated or that it was impossible for such a sweet old lady to be actually so mean. And then parentheses, she cares so much about appearances. Yeah, that is like textbook... uh, narcissist is the people that live with him know a very very different story Uh, any positive experiences with abusers my grandmother and parents are why i am loved as i am today even if they couldn't show or express it proper properly they ended up giving me the tools healthier otherwise needed to have the specific support network and loved ones i do now It becomes hard to actually say, hey, maybe this particular issue goes further back than you. Take it easy. Darkest thoughts. The violence. I've always fascinated about it, how it might feel. The blood and panic and adrenaline all mixed together. But I also think maybe it's just a glorious fantasy in my head, born of trying so hard to be a good, loving person. Darkest secrets. I have been the violator, sneaking, skulking, spying. I've posted pictures of girls online in trade for other girls I know born out of this deep need for private gratification. And I feel guilty at first, but time is ever the anodyne. It makes it all seem distant, like someone else did it somehow, if I just don't think about it enough. 
I stopped, though. Got rid of the collection. Stopped lurking for random girls, I know. I just let porn do it for me now and stop indulging my creepy voyeuristic side. Good, good for you that you're, that you're growing. That sound patronizing? Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I feel like a gimp that hasn't been let out of the box or put in it, I guess. Uh, my, my desire for domination and force and control used to be born from a juvenile hate. Some angst I could hardly control. Dark, urgent instincts that I let out in small increments with accepting partners. But now, in the process of maturation, I find that fire dying and instead being replaced with a deep wish for someone to control me now. Since with my current and past partners, I'm usually the one with the power, it feels like if the right person were to control me sexually, the other avenues of my life will begin to be easier. Sharing this makes me feel neutral, I guess. Just more frustration, a deeper desire. I feel guilty that I want to find someone else with a knack for force, someone that gets the same pleasure from pain. It hurts sometimes that my partner is only willing to explore it for my sake with absolutely no interest or initiation on her part. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to say I'm sorry to the lovers and friends I have hurt in my quest to become somewhat human. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my partner to find the same excitement and depth of feeling in exploring my side of the sexual spectrum, in the parentheses, control, comma, force, as I did learning that hers, tenderness and security, can be a source of deep satisfaction as well. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared these thoughts regularly with my girlfriend, but I haven't seen any change except a new insistence for me to have a faster, harder rhythm during sex, which I honestly don't know if she she's thinking equals rough sex or not. And whenever it's brought up, she gets very anxious, bordering hysterical, and it becomes difficult to communicate. It just feels like my desire to explore is only encouraged when it suits her own fantasies. Like having a threesome with a guy was easy to make happen, yet even mentioning certain women's names causes acute distress. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel weird. I know my girlfriend listens to every single one of these, and I get anxious that if she knew how perverted I really, in the parentheses, might be, we would cease to be compatible. I love her so much, but I'm scared the differences in sexual natures might drive a rift between us, since most conversations regarding our sexuality end in me feeling guilty, having voiced my opinion, or brought it up with her, having a near hysteric fit. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't know if violence and force is wrong, but I know that watching rough videos, including power play, and allowing myself to be forceful despite common opinion, I was able to prevent myself from ever falling victim to the ultimate degenerative instincts. Violence, sleep molestation, house invasion, etc. I like to think my exercises in parentheses, evil, are what allow me to be as compassionate and loving as I am. Thank you for filling that out, man. That was um, that was very articulate and, and deep. And, um, you know, I think um, a great example of the importance, uh, the, the difference between um, 
a healthy expression of sexual fantasy and an unhealthy expression of sexual fantasy. And um, I, I appreciate you filling that out. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Back to Monkey, and she identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s, and she struggles with uh, borderline personality disorder, extreme anxiety, autism-like traits, um, and um, yeah. What's helped you deal with them? Realizing and accepting the humans are animals just like the others that we share this world with. I train horses for a living, and the knowledge I've accrued on animal behavior gave me a whole new perspective to my mental health and the things I deal with. Being able to understand how animals deal with trauma and process it, and how the society we've created doesn't nurture our ability to do the same. Take a moment to notice and appreciate the other beings we have the blessing to share this beautiful world with and the unique qualities that characterize their being. The swift and agile deer is able to vanish through the thick wood in an instant uh, due to uh, threat of predation. You guys are too fucking smart for me. Watch the peregrine, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, falcon dive from the skies, reaching speeds past 200 miles per hour, knowing that the pain of hunger drives him to perform. From adversity comes the beauty of being. How can we cherish the reward if it is not well earned? A life devoid of discomfort, pain, and struggle is not balanced, not full. We must see it through the darkness to appreciate the dawn. Now, when I'm having a meltdown or a panic attack where my body is seemingly trying to kill me, I'm able to ground myself in the idea that if I can survive this, if I can embrace it and lean into the pain and fully experience it, I will come out stronger. Damn! Damn! Some good shit. And then finally, this is, uh, this is another survey from a person who calls himself Bob Dylan's long-lost child. And uh, these are their loves. I love when my dog rolls around in the grass to cool off, and it looks like she's swimming in it. I love when a driver puts up the thanks hand signal after letting them pass you. I love when dogs swim, any dog, swimming, ever. The days when the depression starts to lift and music sounds better and getting out of bed isn't so hard and you slowly notice in small details that things are better. When seeing people make their own seating charts and just start naturally sitting in the same seat every day of the week. Everyone slowly learns who sits where and notes when someone mixes it up or a new person takes someone's quote assigned seat. Very old couples, just seeing them makes my heart warm, even if they're not doing anything. The feeling you get after setting up a tent and making your sleeping bag bed. The sense of accomplishment that you just built yourself a little home is unbeatable. I love when clementines are in season. I love the bond of getting in trouble with a friend in youth. In the parentheses, this sucks, but we're in it together. When really small kids give you a hug, but they're so short, it's like they're just hugging your knees. 
A family I knew had a special needs child. She was obsessed with K-pop, and they had an alarm in their house that would go off at a certain time every day, designating it was K-pop time, and she would just blast her favorite songs and dance around for the next hour. I love getting your passport stamped and then excitedly looking at the stamp in amazement that you are in a different country. I love the feeling after you pee when you've been holding it in for a long time. And I love clean sheet night. Those are fucking awesome. Never get tired of reading, reading loves. Even the, you know, like the, a lot of the pet ones have been listed before, but I just love being reminded of, of how great that is. Those moments. I hope you, you guys got something out of, uh, right now I'm just, I'm so the voice in my head is going, you made a couple of mistakes back there. You should really go back and fix those. And you know what I'm going to say to that? Across my front lawn to the mean voice neighbor in my head, go back in your fucking house. I'm wrapping this thing up. I've heard enough of your bullshit. If you don't mind, I'm going to go water my petunias. <laughs> if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just remember that uh, your tribe is out there somewhere. You just maybe haven't met them yet. And um, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.